You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. What does Jesus Christ think of other religions? In the 1960s, the president of India was a scholar of comparative religions. His name is Sarvapali Radhakrishnan. An introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, which are the sacred scriptures of the Hindu people, He writes this, The same God is worshipped by all. The differences of conception and approach are determined by local coloring and social adaptations. All manifestations belong to the same supreme. As I was thinking about the subject, I was reminded of that fable that you've no doubt heard about the elephant. In the fable, the elephant represents God. And all the religions of the earth represent blind men who are groping at different parts of the elephant and guessing at what God might be like and getting it partly right and partly wrong. And that's when my mind began to wander, as it often does, as I'm thinking about a sermon. I began to think about uh, Babar and uh, his cousin Celeste, these two elephants. And, you know, they uh, actually end up getting married to each other, which I guess you can do if you're an elephant. (laughs) And it was then that I heard Celeste say to Babar, Babar, since you were moved to the city for grad school, have you found a new church home? Babar said, I've tried a few, but my interest in Christianity is not what it used to be. Celeste, why? Babar, well... Lately, I've made a lot of friends who practice different religions. Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. Good and sincere people whose lives are marked by a sense of devotion, fulfillment, and true beauty. I began to feel very uncomfortable. Does it make any sense for me to hold on to my narrow Christian beliefs when so many believe differently? How could so many people be wrong? How would God... Let them be wrong. Celeste. So you began to study these religions to see which was right. Babar. Well, not exactly. I just began to think that maybe somehow they are all right. Celeste. I suppose you could just as easily have concluded that they are all wrong. Babar. Well, maybe. But my intent was to honor them as pathways to enlightenment, as valid as our own. Celeste. You mean pathways to God? Babar. Oh, well, dear Celeste, I guess that this is what enlightenment might mean for you. But remember that for the Buddhist, God is not an important concept. And in African folk religion, there are many gods. And yet, both find enlightenment in their different experiences of ultimate reality. Celeste, you seem to say that with a capital U and a capital R. Babar, if you like. The fact is that none of us has direct knowledge of ultimate reality. And our experiences of it, our religious experiences, are colored and shaped by very local influences. Psychology, culture, history, etc. That's why the religions the world over report these experiences in different ways. But it is the same reality. Celeste. And so you now hold that all religions are all right. Is that correct? Babar, exactly. 
As always, Celeste, your abundant ears do you great credit. <laughs> now I consider myself a pluralist. It's much more comfortable. Now I embrace all religions. Celeste, and yet I wonder if they embrace you. Babar, sorry? Celeste, of course I'm being silly, Babar. The great religions have not had the pleasure of knowing you as I have. But I do wonder if those who practice them would themselves feel more or less comfortable with the new you. Would they consider you a member in Mecca, say, or Tibet, or Jerusalem? Babar, probably not. Celeste, why not? Babar, well, I don't believe in practice exactly as they do. But we all agree on the essentials. Celeste, I would like that very much too, but I am not sure we do yet. The New Testament, for example, claims that Jesus died on a cross. The Quran claims he did not. If you sat a devout Christian and a devout Muslim together in a room and told them, you are both correct, or your disagreement is non-essential, which one will thank you? You see, Babar, I am afraid that whereas before you only disagreed with many devout people, now you are at risk of denigrating them. Babar, hmm. But that's not my intent. Celeste, no. Babar, the important thing, dear Celeste, is that I accept their beliefs as valid for them. In this sense, they are all equally true. How could you deny the reality of religious experience that so many non-Christians report? Celeste, Oh, I would not dare. But what you and I both deny is the variety of interpretations that people give these experiences. They interpret them within their religious tradition, I within mine, and you as a pluralist. Babar, maybe you are right. And yet as a pluralist, I no longer have to decide which beliefs are truer than others. Celeste, tell me, Babar, what religion do ivory traders practice? Babar, I don't know. Celeste, would you want to affirm that people with a creed, elephants are not human, have a pathway to enlightenment that is as valid as, say, the serene ethical practice of Confucianism? Babar, heavens no. But who are we to judge? At the end of the day, a Hindu is a Hindu simply because she is born in India. And don't you think we are Christians because we live in this fine Christian land? Celeste, I don't know. But I appeal to your considerable memory, Babar. You were not born here. And I was not raised a Christian, but later converted. And again, it seems that you have converted to pluralism. In what land are pluralists born? <laughs> Babar, clever Celeste. I thank you for your questions and your wisdom. Celeste, let him who has ears hear. <laughs> the end. As we... Oh, see what you started, David? Let's uh, bow our heads and come before our Lord in prayer. Let's open our ears and sit before God with all that we are today and all that's going on in our world and our lives and ask Him this question. God, how big is your hope for us, for me, in Jesus Christ? What does Jesus think of other religions? 
I just want to say, I, I'm not sure I know. So there you go, you get what you paid for. But, you know, the elephant in the room really is, how does religion look from God's perspective? Not from mine, but from God's. And I think we have a wonderful passage this morning that allows us to see what we would never be able to see if God hadn't come in the flesh to speak for himself in Jesus Christ. Would you open up your Bible to John chapter 1? Our text this morning is verses 1 through 13, and I'm going to read it for us because... We just confessed our faith, but one of the things you and I need to do before we confess any faith at all is to listen. We need to hear because faith is a response to what God has said to you in Jesus Christ. So just enjoy listening in whatever way is comfortable for you as I read this great text. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. What is common to being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, And his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. I want to just suggest three implications for this rich conversation about Jesus and other religions. Three implications. The first one is this. There is truth in all religions. I believe that, and I believe this text leads us to believe that. There is truth in all religions. Interesting, in the most recent edition of the Chronicle of Higher Education, there is an article from one of our own UW professors Uh, His name is uh, uh, David Barish. He's an evolutionary biologist, and he's writing this lead article to, to say, isn't there a mystery? He calls us homo mysterious, because with all that we have learned through the hard sciences, there's so much we do not know. And there, he lists a bunch of questions that evolutionary biologists would love to have the answers to, because... These questions get at attributes of human nature that do not seem to have any kind of evolutionary benefit. One of the questions that Dr. Baresh asks is, why is religion found in all human societies? You anthropologists tell us that this is the case, that there seems to be something about human beings that makes us intrinsically religious throughout time and space, wherever you go. I think... St. John has given us the answer to the question. 
I think St. John, reading that article, would say, I can tell you why, and that is because God has created all people. All people. Not one was created by anything other than God. And he has created all people for relationship with himself, for communion with himself. The one who is the word, the one who is eternal communion and speech, wants to be known by all people. And so, of course, human beings are religious. We should not be expect, surprised when we find people around us are inherently religious. That's the way God's made them. The imprint of his nature is on them. There's a, a, a yearning in their soul for communion with the one who created them and who is himself life and light. And so all human beings virtually have raised their hands in some kind of piety or devotion or worship trying to fulfill that deep-seated intrinsic need. John tells us he was in the beginning. See, John wants us to understand Jesus Christ in relation to a doctrine of creation. In the beginning is the Jewish title for the book of Genesis. It just begins in the beginning. So in conscious imitation, John says, in the beginning, you know who was active? It was Jesus Christ, the Word. He made all things, we read in verse 3. He's the light of all people, we read in verse 4. There is truth in all religions. We don't need to deny that. What does this mean? It means that whereas for so long, people in the church, and we have to own this history as Christians, have denied and devalued what we meet in the religions of other people, sometimes in brutal and hostile ways, we, we are not called to do that as a people. In fact, we are free as a people to discover the truth of Jesus Christ in other religions. He is the light shining on all people. So we can move into this conversation with a sense of expectation and as people who are eager to learn. There's truth in all religions. The second point is that all religion is inadequate. All religion, including Christianity. There's no religion that addresses the deepest problem that all humans face. That is alienation from God. And followers of Jesus Christ know this. We should know this by now. We are not saved by our Christianity, by our religion. We are saved by Jesus. He is the Savior. God help us as pastors if we imbue you with a a sense of perfect orthodoxy, but do not introduce you to Jesus Christ. Someday I will stand before God and answer. He'll ask, George, how did you help those people get to know my son, Jesus Christ? He is our Savior. We see that now that John wants to introduce us to the Savior Jesus in relation not to the doctrine of creation, but to the doctrine of human depravity and sin. This light of God is shining within the darkness. This hope is born to those who find it not by will of flesh, not by the works of humanity, not by blood, but really by the intrusion of God's grace into our lives. It's Jesus Christ who brings us to life, not our own piety. So he wants to point out, he he interrupts his beautiful poem with a little digression in which he talks about John. Did he catch that? It's not John himself, the evangelist. It's John the Baptist. And he wants to say, "I, I just, you know, John the Baptist, Jesus called the greatest born among women. You, you could say John the Baptist, if, if there were anybody who's an exemplar of great religion, it would be John the Baptist, and yet John the Evangelist wants to say he's not the light. 
He only comes as a witness to the light. And that's the best that you and I can hope for, or any human being as well. Simply to recognize we are not the light, and we will not create the light, and we will not find it through any amount of effort on our own. We will only receive it as a gift from God in Jesus Christ. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, said all religion leads either to pride or despair. But the good news this morning is that grace is different. Why? Because religion is man's attempt to reach God, to claw into the heavens. But grace is God's mission to reach us, to reach you. Religion says, what must I do? Grace says, look at what God has done in Jesus. What does this mean? It means that the Christian and the non-Christian can stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, as peers. For God in Jesus Christ speaks his judgment on both of our religions. His no on every human ideology, system of belief and practice in which we try to find our own salvation is spoken so that he can speak with clarity his yes in Jesus Christ. You belong to me. I love you. You're mine. Come home. There is truth in all religions. Secondly, I've tried to argue that all religion is inadequate. And third, finally, God speaks to all of us in Jesus Christ. Jesus here is presented to us not in the context only of creation or of human sin, but here in relation to the doctrine of redemption. Jesus Christ is the Word, not the Word about God, but the Word of God. He's the Word who is God. In Jesus Christ, God has stepped into time and space to be able to look you and me face to face, eye to eye, heart to heart, shoulder to shoulder, and say, I love you. I know you. I made you. I am your life. Let's do it together. You see, Jesus here, we find, is unique among all the great spiritual teachers of the world. None of them will claim what Jesus claims about himself. All will claim to know about God or to be able to give witness to God, but none of them but Jesus Christ claims to be God. To back that claim up with the kind of life that we would expect God himself to live if he ever were to become incarnate and walk among us. There's an old parable told about a Hindu Brahmin priest who's walking a field one day, and he marvels at the intricacy and the diligence of ants who are building this colony in the furrows. And he, he meditates on this, and while he's doing so, catches out of the corner of his eye the farmer who's approaching with his plow, furrow by furrow, and he realizes this whole colony is destined for destruction. He becomes very anxious about that. What can I do? And he concludes that the only thing that he could do if he really wanted to save this colony would be to reduce himself somehow and actually become an ant and speak that language that ants must understand, ant to ant. You see, that's what God has done. He has come to speak for himself in Jesus Christ. He's done so in history. Notice the two tenses of God's speech. In verse 11 we read, he came. He came to the first century. Historically, he came and he spoke from within history. But notice also there's another tense in verse 9. That's the present tense. It's not past, it's present. He enlightens everyone. Why is that important? That's important because the evangelist writes this letter, the Gospel of John, to us, to those who never knew Jesus historically in the first century, but who can know him today simply by believing that he is for us. 
we too can welcome him into our lives and receive the power to become daughters and sons of God simply by faith. He is speaking to us today, John says. I'll never forget the night that I first understood that it wasn't just that God spoke to Noah and Moses, but that he's speaking to me, that he's a speaking God, that he is the word, and he speaks to me, and he speaks to you as well. I uh, received a letter just yesterday from a friend of mine who, uh, I, I met him in campus ministry a hundred years ago when I was back in Boston working with college students, and this young man grew in faith in Jesus Christ in a wonderful way, and God called him into ministry, and he's working with college students to this day in Boston. But this summer, he's on a mission trip, and he's in a country, and he can't reveal the name because of security purposes because he's working with Muslims. It's a very Muslim country in the Middle East. And yet in his letter, he writes to tell me what I think is a remarkable story about a young man named Owner. Owner is a student. And he believes in Allah, he tells my friend, but he's had a setback in his faith because just a, a year ago, Medical problems took him out of school, and he's been really suffering. It's hard for him to understand that Allah cares about him in a personal way. And trying to think of how he could respond to this man's experience of tragedy, my friend said, have you, have you ever heard this? J.R.R. Tolkien gives us a sense of hope when he says, uh, yes, Tolkien asks this question, have all the sad things come untrue? It's a question that we might ask at the end of time. Have all the sad things come untrue? And, and, and then somewhat apologetically, he says, oh, I'm sorry, J.R. Tolkien, he's a Brit, and I, he, there's this book and the movies about the Lord of the Rings, and you probably haven't heard about it. And at that point, owner pulls up his sleeve, and he shows him a tattoo of this door. Uh, th- that is the door. That's the gates of uh, Moria. Moria. And um, on that door are inscribed, and on his arm, speak, friend, and enter. Somehow in the mystery of God's love for this young man, he had put literally an image of welcome on his arm and sent my friend thousands of miles to stand by his side in the midst of his trial and tell him the name of the one who invites him to enter and to know the one who is the way and the truth and the life very personally. God speaks to us all in Jesus Christ. What does this mean to you? Well, I hope it means that God wants you to find life, you to find hope in Him, in Jesus. And if you believe this today, if you're willing to believe just an ounce of this today, I want to invite you not to say, I agree. Jesus is God. I want you to say what we say when we have a husband and wife, a man and a woman coming in a marriage ceremony and say to one another, I do. Which is a much more active commitment to say, I do. I receive from you the gift of life. And I give you all that I know of myself. I do. And John encourages us to believe that if we make that simple gesture of welcome towards Jesus Christ, then we can know we have the power Another translation would be, say, we have the authority to become or to recognize that we are, in Jesus Christ, children of God. We have life. Receive him today by faith and enter that door. Who is Jesus? Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, great Word of God, You have come to speak Your decision about us and to claim us and to say there is no condemnation for us. We belong to You as Your children and we have life everlasting and You journey through this life by our side, giving us the power to face all that we face. We thank You for the incredible gift Truly, you teach us no one has greater love than this than that he laid down his life for his friend. You have called us your friends and you have laid down your life that we might live in you, that we might be alive in Christ. It gives us such joy this morning. This is why we're here to worship you. And we pray that as part of our worship, you would receive these tithes and offerings as expressions of gratitude and as our commitment to join with you in your continuing mission to speak grace into this world. Lord, you give us a new commandment that we would love one another as we have been loved. So by your Spirit, enable these gifts, our generosity, to be expressions of your love in the world, that your friends might know your name and that we might be a part of what you're doing as you continue to speak to them even today. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, a blogger wrote, It's a bad time to be Brit Hume. And that was um, not just because Brit Hume had gone through the pain of divorce, not just because Brit Hume had gone through the loss of a child, grown child, to suicide. It was because Brit Hume stuck his neck out in a very awkward way into our media culture. You may remember the story. Tiger Woods was going through his trauma. His world was literally unraveling. And in the midst of that, I think perhaps off the cuff, Britt Hume said something on national television about Tiger. He offered him some advice. Hume said, Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. Whether he can recover as a person, I think, is a very open question. And it's a tragic situation for him. I think he's lost his family. It's not clear to me if he'll be able to have a relationship with his children. But the Tiger Woods that emerges once the news value dies out of this scandal, the extent to which he can recover seems to me to depend on his faith. He's said to be a Buddhist. I don't think that that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to the Christian faith and you can make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. Now, it was a very awkward moment and uh, that didn't go so well in the culture, if you remember that. There was a lot of blogging about it and a lot of back and forth on Sunday news shows. And you might yourself have chosen to word that a little differently. And you might have chosen not to give Tiger Wood advice on national television. And yet, I think the whole incident tells us really more about our culture than it does about Brit Hume. It's a very sensitive time right now for talk of other religions. And the question is, how do people who really have found unspeakable hope for life today in Jesus Christ People like you and me and Brit Hume and I, I, how do we share that hope with a culture that is very wary of religious dialogue in general and in particular distrusts Christians? How would we do that? Well, I want to suggest that the answer is in this text. And it is simply, we live as witnesses. Witnesses. 
This is the word that is repeated by John three times in that little digressive paragraph in which he presents to us John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry is a model for us. Dave Rohr has written a great book, our, our uh, recent, uh, pastor of, of education, um, and it's about how John the Baptist gives pastors a model for ministry. But I want to suggest to you that's true. Even more than that, John the Baptist gives a model of ministry for all of us. See, all of us are witnesses. It's not just that we're called to be witnesses. We all are witnesses. The question is whether we're good witnesses or bad witnesses. Jesus says in, in Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. And that's not wishful thinking on his part. That's his intention. We would all be his witnesses. And so we sit here as a community of witnesses. So what is a witness? The Greek word that's being used here in the Bible is marturia. And you may hear the English word martyr, which does come from that word. And you think, oh, great. Uh, <laughs> but no, listen, but listen, when the word marturia was used in the New Testament, it carried no sense of someone who, 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 who dies for their belief. That meaning is attached to the word later. At this time, it's really something, someone who lives for their beliefs. It's really someone who gives testimony. Now, it's a legal word, and I, I think the best definition you'll find, and if you're interested, I, this is worthy of writing down. It's not my words. Daryl Guter, our pastor in residence, came, and uh, his definition of a witness sticks in my head. A witness is, quote, someone who gives evidence on the basis of which other people make decisions. That's a witness. Somebody who gives evidence in their lives on the basis of which other people make their decision about Jesus Christ. What John is hinting at through John the Baptist, and as the story develops and this word witness takes on more meaning, is this, that the living word who is the communication of God in the world speaks through you and through me. We now have the opportunity and the responsibility of making the word flesh in the world today. That's our call as witnesses. So very quickly, let me give you two implications for this in relation to our original question about other religions. And this is very important. The first one is this. A witness is not a judge. Make sure you catch that distinction. A witness is not a judge. And somehow, somewhere along the way, Christians, whether because we were motivated to take this role or other people forced it upon us, began to think of ourselves as judges. And we like to sit there and people come to us and they ask us, well, do you think Mahatma Gandhi is in heaven or in hell? Is Bob Dylan going to heaven? You know, we get all these questions. We should, you know, all I want to say is, I have no idea. That's, that question is way above my pay grade. Okay? Because I've been called simply as a witness to Jesus Christ. And he's the judge. And that should be good news, by the way, because I know Jesus Christ, and I know he reveals himself as pure grace. So our role as we think about our friends and neighbors who have other religions is, is really just to give witness and to sidestep any question of judgment. That's not our role. And as we give this witness, we think about what our demeanor should be. It should be absolute humility. We should take on the very humility, the, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, that God demonstrates in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how we engage this conversation, in weakness. It's very unimpressive, but it is the power of God at work in the world. The second implication is of being a witness is that a witness is somebody who pays attention. You know, at the corner of 4th and Main, what did you see? Well, I saw this. Witnesses are alert to the world. They're alert to what God is doing as he continues to speak the truth of Jesus Christ into the world. They want to gain better perception of Jesus at work today. 
the great missionary Leslie Newbegin, who served for decades in India, very encouraging things to say about inter-religious dialogue and how Christians can participate. We're not just in the conversation to preach. We do have good news to preach. But we're also in the conversation to listen and to learn as those who are attentive to what Jesus is doing in the lives of other people. Newbegin reminds us that all of us tend to look at Jesus through lenses that are informed by our culture. And therefore, we don't see him with crystal clarity. We'll only see Jesus with crystal clarity one day when every tribe and language and people are gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ as depicted in the book of Revelation. Then, in this intercultural, multicultural experience, we will see Jesus for who he is. But today, we can get clearer perception of him as we begin to see him through the eyes of somebody who has lived their life in a different tradition. This, Newbegin argues, is what happens in Acts chapter 10 when God says, sends Peter to Cornelius, who Peter is a Jew, believes in Jesus Christ, and Cornelius is a Gentile, he's outside of the faith. And at that interchange changes not only Cornelius as he comes to believe in Jesus, but Peter as he comes to believe that he can eat any food and that God is at work beyond Judaism in the world. Newbegin writes that mission changes not only the world, but it changes the church. So we can be humble witnesses who know ourselves not to be judges and humble witnesses who can learn from people of other faiths as well. So you are a witness. We together as a church in Seattle are a witness. So excited about that. I want you to think about the people in your lives. This is all about relationships. God is a strategist. He's already put you in his mission, embedded you in a network of people for whom you and we are going to give witness to Jesus. Think about the people in your life. And I want to close with a poem that I think may well define what a witness is really doing. This is Edgar Guest, who writes this, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing. But examples always clear. And the best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. And then here the other person responds, I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you, and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. As we uh, close in prayer, I want to invite you to bow again in quiet and, and take two more questions to the Lord. Ask Him this, God, to whom have you sent me so that the Word can become flesh in my life for them? And secondly, what can I do this week to let Christ's light shine through me. Let's ask him. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117